Hello, welcome back to another episode of the Code 321 podcast. I'm joined by a very special guest today, Matt Spire. Hi, Matt. How are you? I am excellent, Nick. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. So today what we're going to talk about is um, this concept of fighting against complacency. Whether you work in the medical field, if you work in EMS, if you work in the fire service, I think most jobs have some type of complacency. You know, even if you're a construction worker, you know, maybe you don't wear your your hard hat every single day. Maybe you kind of get used to it because nothing bad ever happens. However, when we're dealing with really critical patients in the field, we want to make sure that we don't have that complacency because it can have this escalator effect and cause a lot of terrible, terrible issues down the road. So today we're going to talk all about some of the things that we've run into in our careers, some of the trends we've seen, and some of the ways you can start to combat that. So Matt, if you want to just start by telling the folks a little bit about how did you get into EMS, what's your background, and kind of where are you today? Well, I um, took kind of a long and winding road. Um, I think there were a bunch of side trips or detours along the way, but uh, I think um, I really got into this through ski patrolling. It kind of served as a gateway into EMS and uh, search and rescue and technical rescue for me. Um, The outdoors has always been like a real passion for me. I really enjoy skiing and cycling and backpacking and mountaineering. And um, mountaineering trips that I took kind of, uh, I learned some basic rope skills for doing crevasse rescue and glacier travel. Um, But ski patrolling was kind of a no-brainer because this was like an organized group of people who were trained to do like some pre-hospital care um, and hand off uh, patients to uh, transport service. Um, And then also uh, get, you know, some involvement with uh, rope rescue for doing like vertical evacuation on chairlifts. Uh, And then, of course, the ability to ski all day and collect a paycheck. That is so, nice. Yeah, it was pretty sweet and, and still is. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that was really kind of like what opened the, the door to me. Uh, during that time, I also got involved with a uh, search and rescue team, New York Search and Rescue, uh, which is sort of the Hudson Valley, uh, an area just about 100 miles north of New York City. Um, and I kind of like uh, decided that this was kind of a, a path I'd like to follow and figured, well, um, how am I going to actually turn this into a, a, uh, a career? And um, started volunteering with uh, New Pulse Rescue Squad, which was a community about 90 miles north of New York. I had done my EMT course through Solo uh, and Wilderness EMT. And uh, working with New Pulse Rescue gave me a taste of what 911 work was like and um, transports. Uh, And that kind of whet my appetite to say, yeah, maybe this is a path I want to go down. and so I kind of um, kept doing the patrol thing and at some point decided uh, that I would apply for the FDNY EMS. And um, I mean, I was living in New York City at the time and uh, ultimately got hired uh, as an EMT um, and cut my teeth uh, in midtown Manhattan doing some pretty interesting BLS work. Oh, yeah, I can only imagine. Yeah, there was um, every day was kind of an, an adventure. Um, uh, but uh, FDNY had a great opportunity in that uh, they offer a paramedic training program. So with some time on the job, you could test into the program. And if you're accepted, they would basically take you off the street and then you'd go um, to the academy to paramedic school five days a week for nine months. And then they would continue to pay your salary. So wow. that getting is paid nice. for your education is a pretty sweet deal. Yeah, I was lucky enough to be able to be sponsored by a fire department as well. Um, Unfortunately, we didn't get taken off the floor, but uh, it was a huge deciding factor in where I ended up having the ability to go have an organization pay for me to become a paramedic was a huge deal. Yeah, it's it's great. I mean, it serves everybody. Yeah, absolutely. So you work in FDNY for a while, and then what brought you to Vermont? Yeah, well, um, 
at some point we decided that, uh, you know, we had a, a three-year-old at the time and I think every, and we were living in a, in a one bedroom apartment and every day that he got bigger, it seemed the apartment just got smaller and smaller. So yeah. we decided we needed to like, we needed to go. So in, uh, in 2013, we escaped New York. We came to Vermont, um, kind of a place that suited our lifestyle better. We're pretty outdoor oriented people. Yeah, absolutely. We, I know we make that pitch with a lot of our new employees. And that was a big pitch for me when I came to UVM is the fact that you have some of those urban luxuries that we're used to, you know, the public safety, the restaurants open late, um, you know, things that you can utilize in the city center, but then you drive 20 minutes and, you know, you can't hear another person yeah. for six miles. And that's pretty cool. Yeah. It took a while to get adjusted to, um, not hearing sirens and buses all night long. Yeah, right. I know. We try, at least in Burlington, we try to be a little bit respectful, especially when we're going through the residential spots. You know, that whole, uh, you know, only use your siren if you need the siren. But the few times I visited uh, New York City, I don't remember a time at night where there wasn't some type of siren. Yeah. Well, if you work tour one in New York, you could be, um, people tended to actually be pretty low key with the siren. That's good. That's yeah. good. Yeah, that's awesome. You just get tired of hearing it from inside the truck. After oh, a while. yeah, <laughs> I bet. And how many, uh, how many providers do you have on an FDNY Amos? Just two or? Yeah, so the way it worked in New York um, and still works, there are BLS units and there are ALS units and certainly a much larger percentage of BLS units. So those are um, a crew of two EMTs and uh, New York City doesn't recognize intermediate level uh, providers. So they're uh, straight up BLS. And then there are ALS crews that have two paramedics. Um, there is a matrix that's followed by the call receiving operator. So they will kind of dispatch a BLS unit or an ALS unit, depending on the call type, or uh, some tiered response where they might get a BLS, ALS unit and a uh, CFR unit, so an engine company as well. Yep. That makes a lot of sense. Um, I know we've talked about this with well, back when we talked with Bill Cattell about kind of the different types of systems and how to get a job. One of the things we talked about to our providers here in Vermont is there's a lot of emphasis placed on the AEMT when it comes to the local services here. And just know that most urban centers that we've come across, both Boston, New York, you know, those those large urban EMS systems, Typically, they look for an EMT, which is going to have like a driver BLS role or a paramedic who's going to be a primary provider on the on the critical patients. But a lot of large agencies, you know, uh, Boston EMS and um, FDNY EMS, you know, they're not looking for the AEMT. Whereas up here where we work, because we're a little more rural, you might see more of an appetite for a job like that. Yeah. I know there was a push years ago in New York um, to have what they were called um, Mensa medics. So this was, uh, there, again, two two-man crews, two-person crews, uh, one one ALS, one medic provider, and one BLS provider. But the uh, medics kind of pushed against that because we just felt uh, we wanted to have uh, the ability to have two medics in the back of the truck if necessary. So what would, would typically happen if we had a critical patient, uh, we could request a BLS backup and they would come and assist us maybe with patient movement. But then also uh, the two medics could work in the back of the truck. One of the BLS providers would drive our truck and the other would drive the BLS truck. Yeah, that, that makes a ton of sense. That's super handy. I know for just from my experience, you know, when I worked, we both worked on Colchester and when I was on Colchester, or those other services, being the only medic, you really are the only medic for the most part. Very yeah. rarely, unless a full-timer is working, do you have multiple medics on duty? Whereas, you know, here in Burlington, you know, a cardiac arrest call generates 
two suppression units and an ambulance. So the likelihood that you're going to have more than one medic is pretty high. And it's just so helpful to be able to bounce ideas off one another. And, you know, if you're seeing something on the monitor, you can, you know, pick a drug and the other medic can be like, well, what about this one? You know, or that yeah. makes a ton of sense, or I'll draw it up for you, or let me prep your tube, you know, just those little things that you can get help from your other provider. Um, it's just huge. And that's a huge, huge help. Yeah. But you know, on the upside, what we have here in Vermont or certainly in, um, yeah, I mean, in Vermont is having those A-level providers who can establish IV access and could, to a certain degree, run a code by themselves because yeah. you can push, um, you know, the cardiac meds. Absolutely. Know? And I, I have talked about it before. We had uh, Eric Casvent was on the show. He was my partner for a long time. And having an AEMT that's that heads up, I really only had to swoop in and do the very, like, pretty much I just have to push the button or, you know, push the actual med itself. Because, you know, if we had a really sick CHF patient, I'd get in the back of the truck, the 12 liter would already be on, they'd already be on CPAP. Up. they'd already have IV access they, he'd, he'd hand me the nitro bottle like he already knew what I was going to do and short of actually administering the med um, it was it was uh, definitely something that I think I took for granted for a long time and I've been lucky to have partners that kind of anticipate your needs which is huge yeah yeah so moving into this complacency thing um, a common theme that that I always think of is that idea of anticipating needs. Like you go to a call and the, you know you hear it from your EMT textbook the minute that that call comes out you start generating these differential diagnoses and kind of formulating a plan in your head. Um, and that kind of starts with what type of equipment you're going to grab. Yeah. So can you share some experiences either from, you know, FDNY or your other experience about um, what are some experiences you've had with complacency, either yourself or with your crews that you kind of hold dear to, to be better in the future? Yeah. So um, it was kind of drummed into our heads in New York through the Academy that, um, there were specific pieces of luggage that you took with you every time you exited the ambulance, regardless of what the call came in as. And so since that's how I was taught, that's, you know, I came here with that, um, that attitude because, uh, you know, we start seeing size up um, from the moment the dispatch gives us information. So just like you said, you know, we start to think like, what could the call be? What, you know, how is this patient presenting? Um, what might be a presumptive diagnosis? Um, but we know from experience that no fault of dispatch, that very often the information we get is not reality-based once we show up. Uh, and that's no, again, no, no fault of the dispatcher, but um, sometimes whoever's calling is not giving proper information. So uh, we find that um, if, you've if you're leaving your tools behind, there's a strong likelihood you're going to need them. Yep. And, you know, some of the pushback that I, or, you know, that I had heard here was that, well, you know, we always have the ability to just walk back to the truck. Um, certainly uh, in New York, there is a possibility that we are 20 stories, you know, up in a high rise building, or we could be, you know, multiple um, stories underground in the subway system. And the option of going back to get equipment is not really feasible, but, the way I look at this is that um, there really shouldn't be any delay in patient care and certainly not because we left a piece of equipment behind because we assumed, we made some assumptions that it wasn't going to be what it turned out to be. Yeah. Uh, so I can certainly give you some examples. I mean, we, um, I remember uh, one call that I had uh, going into Penn Station. We were often um, called down to, to uh, the uh, MTA police. That's uh, one of the, sections of the transit police for, um, I think somebody with like an arm, ex, uh, an arm injury, somebody had, had fallen. And as I'm, we're going down to the, to the police station down there, I run into a guy that I used to work with, um, who is walking out by himself 
he's in uniform. And I'm like, like, uh, Dan, like, where are you going? He's like, Hey, can, can, can I use your ox? Can we borrow your oxygen? I'm like, for what? He's like, well, we've got a patient down here who um, he's in respiratory distress. I'm like, well, where's your oxygen? It's like, well, it's in the truck. I'm like, why don't you bring your oxygen? Yeah. Well, because it came, it, I mean, it came in as, as an intox. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Um, we gave him our oxygen. Yeah. That was fine. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, I had a, a situation where I did an intercept here and, um, I, I brought, I did not bring all of my luggage with me and I had, uh, my medic bag, I had, uh, the cardiac monitor and, uh, the way equipment was organized at this service, we had pediatric size eye gels in the medic bag, but adult size in our first in bag only because at that time, um, A's couldn't use pediatric size, yeah, um, yeah. airway devices. And when I walked into this services ambulance and saw a rather obese um, woman uh, in cardiac arrest with CPR in progress, my first thought is that I am not going to be able to intubate her. She has, yeah. you know, no neck. Yeah. Um, so my first words are, hey, do you guys, uh, why don't you pull out your, your, your supraglottic airway devices? And they're like, well, we actually left our first in bag on scene. Oof. And we were now on the road somewhere. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm like, all right, well, through repositioning, uh, we were able to actually do some good, effective uh, ventilations. Um, yeah. And that worked. But um, I felt at that moment we, you know, really got caught with our pants down. Yeah. Yeah. I remember there was one uh, specific incident that we ran into um, in one of my last departments. We had a cardiac arrest and the monitor actually failed for some reason. Um, I don't remember if it was a pad failure or whatever, but whatever it is was something we could not troubleshoot. And we had an AED, but the AED was not accessible from the inside of the vehicle. It was on one of the outside compartments, you know, so we had to have them pull over and jump out and grab the AED, which wasn't a big deal. From that point on, every next ambulance spec that they did, you could access that critical first in compartment from the inside of the cab. And every ambulance I've worked on, um, it makes a huge difference because if you need to grab that, like you said, if you run out of an eye gel, a lot of our stuff is duplicated both in the first in bag and in the inside of the truck. So if something's wrong with the inside of the truck, you can reach in and grab that bag. But that's an example of, you know, something that's relatively simple when you think about an ambulance spec, but had we not had that situation, we maybe not have shed light on that potential for running into that issue. Yeah, absolutely. Um, um, I think, um, you know, one of the other things in terms of the complacency, because as we discussed, we don't really, we don't really know what we're walking into. Yeah. Um, early in my career here in Vermont, uh, it was discussed with me, hey, you know, you're going to, you know, as a crew chief, you will let the, uh, the crew know what to bring into the call. And I thought that that was just a lot of responsibility to put on everyone because we know that we don't really know what we're getting. Um, and so... I just thought it made more sense that there are key pieces of equipment that, you know, hey, as a service, you decide these are the things we will just bring in for every, for yeah. every call. Yep. Uh, you know, when I worked in New York, it was you and your partner to carry everything. And, and here we tend to, tend to have a luxury of having plenty of hands. So yeah. um, that shouldn't be the issue. Um, and I think that, you know, getting bit on the behind yeah. is never a good feeling. No. Uh, and I think it, it, as a volunteer, the likelihood of having a negative experience like that is pretty slim yeah. um, over the course of a career. So um, 
whatever you can do, whatever you can do to avoid that. Yeah, exactly. You know, one of the other hats I wear is I inspect ambulances for the state. And so I've started to see some similarities in terms of um, how services kind of set up their trucks and set up their equipment. And although our, our role is not to tell you how you should set up your stuff, that's yeah. really up to you. We're yeah. just checking to make sure that you have everything yeah, that's on that the list. Yeah. What you tend to do with it afterwards is, you know, is totally up to you. But I think it is, um, it does open a window to how patient care is done and, and how operationally uh, you function. And certainly in services where they're doing just a few hundred calls a year, uh, some of the um, feedback I've gotten is like, well, what do we need this particular piece of equipment for? We haven't done a pediatric call in like 10 years. Like, well, do you not want to have it Yeah, I know. on the day when that um, event arises? Yeah, no, that makes a ton of sense. Um, some little things that we've tried to do on, on my particular ambulance in conjunction with the other members that work with me, especially the paramedics, is little things like... Um, when you take out our innovation role, what we try to make it is so that you can run all the way from the top of the airway algorithm all the way to the bottom without ever having to go into multiple bags, you know, and all that equipment is duplicated. And then we run scenarios or calls where we run into these roadblocks and it's like, okay, if this isn't available, we're going to use this. And if that isn't available, we're going to use this. And we have a plan for kind of mitigating all those strategies. Um, one of the most common things that I see that doesn't get brought into calls, especially difficulty breathing or unresponsive or codes is the suction. I don't know if you've yeah. dealt with that. Oh, yeah. um, and the, the first time that you deal with a patient that needs to be suctioned and you don't have suction, it's just this, like you get these like cold sweats because you're like, Oh no, they're not breathing. They have an airway obstruction. They're aspirating. And you, it, it's not really something you can replicate, you know, like, okay, you don't have an IV access. So you can at least lie them down and get a couple points on their blood pressure yeah. suction. You can roll them over, but if it's in there, it's in there. I mean, it's just, um, so what I try to do personally is a lot like what you said, the farther away from the truck, I am going to be going, the more equipment I'll bring. So if I'm, you know, if, if we're here, you know, at a residential house and the truck is 30 feet away, okay, maybe I won't bring the entire stretcher, you know, 10 feet to the front of the door. But if I'm going into, you know, the mall downtown, if I'm going into a high rise building, if I'm going to office building, if I'm going to a school, anything where you start to go through multiple locked doors, like I want to have everything possible, pretty much replicate the yeah. inside of the ambulance. And uh, what I've always said to everyone I've worked with is, I personally believe a good paramedic is a paramedic that's very rarely surprised, like the type of paramedic where you you deal with a really sick patient and they go into arrest and you're like, yep, that's why we put the pads on. Charge yeah. them up. Like the type of paramedic that even if you're going for one thing, if it transitions to another, you're like, I identified that that was a risk. That's why we obtained IV access. You know, something as simple as, you know, Dr. Wolfson stressing IV access prior to giving nitro for chest pain, you know, and those, those, providers who, you know, maybe they kind of are like, well, I'll just get the IV as soon as I give the nitro or this thing. And then they get caught with their pants down because now it's a hard stick and the blood pressure is low and the veins are popping out. Yeah. Whereas I think a good forward thinking paramedic or a good forward thinking EMS provider is that type of person that has a bag hung. Maybe it's not flowing yet, you know, but that pressure drops. All they do is open up the bag. They squeeze it. They get the volume return. No big deal. Three to four minutes of, um, you know, duration of action and bam, you're right back to where you were. And I really strive myself to try to limit the amount of times I'm surprised. Yeah, that's really smart. Um, and to keep yourself from being surprised, I think, and also in terms of like doing a good assessment, um, you know, doing that full assessment where you find the patient and 
initiating treatment up front so that you don't have surprises where, hey, you know, I didn't take a blood pressure right away. And then we went like to stand him up to like lay him in the cot and the dude like, you know, went down. Um, so, you know, figuring out what, where, where your problems may arise before you, you, they uh, confront you, I think it's being proactive. Uh, I think there is, tends to be a, a sense, I, I, I find, of, um, well, let's just get them into the ambulance and then we'll start um, working them up. And that's certainly probably good for a lot of patients, but I think it probably makes more sense to start initiating some treatments and certainly doing a thorough assessment um, where you find them. Um, and even if, you know, in, in their home, I think, you know, think about like having, um, you know, an IV started. I mean, somebody might be more comfortable in their own, in their own home than having that done in the back of an ambulance. Yep, exactly. I, I actually just had an episode of this probably like about a year ago. I dealt with a, a young, younger girl who intentionally overdosed on metoprolol. And so I was expecting to see like profoundly bradycardia and I didn't really see much of that. Um, and walking and talking, you know, seems to be mentating. Okay. A little bit pale, but I didn't really put a lot of thought into it. Um, and I stepped out to get on the phone with poison control to talk a little bit about kind of the therapies of it. And, uh, when we got in the back of the truck, I said I was all set cause the patient was pretty good. And, the, the my, provi- my helpful provider hit the blood pressure cuff for me. And as I was on the phone with the hospital, the pressure popped up as, um, 50 over 30, it's a little soft. Yeah. And I was and I was like, how do you feel? And, you know, I have a pounding headache. I'm really dizzy. I can't see. And I was like, oh, okay. So I lie her down and the ambulance was just about to pull away. And I was able to open the door and grab that ALS provider to help give me a hand in the mm-hmm. back. And we ended up giving her a push dose presser and a bunch of fluid. And she went up to the ICU. And it was just one of those calls where I just, I still think about that now, nowadays. And we'll go on a incident and I really try my best before we make decisions about, um, you know, the destination, uh, designation or anything like that to have a full set of vitals, including yeah. a blood pressure. Like before you stand people up, before you move them around, you know, I had another one with a, a gentleman who wasn't feeling well and we almost didn't do an EKG. And I just had that like little spider sense there. Mm-hmm. It, like he didn't look healthy to me, but he was a, a retired physician. He's like, I'm fine. Don't touch me. Don't do this. I was like, and so we actually had the refusal paperwork all drawn up. And uh, I was like, can we at least do an EKG before we leave? You're in your recliner. It's not good. You can even keep watching TV. I won't bother you. Let me just, it'll make me feel better. Um, and we did that. And he was having runs of VTAC. And uh, go. yeah. And when he stood up, he went into uh, VTAC with a pulse and we cardioverted him. And it was one of those things where it could have been easy because he was, you know, he was alert and oriented for him to just be like, I'm fine. See you later. And I could see a lot of people being like, hey, you didn't want to go. You didn't want to go. But, you know, you are the paramedic or you are the provider and it's your job to rule out the rule outable causes. Like exactly. you, you could, how much does an EKG time does it take? How much does it cost? How much energy does it really require from you? Not much. And if you have the monitor right there, why would you not check that box? And, and, and certainly as a paramedic, I mean, that's within your scope to interpret EKGs. And yep. certainly with a refusal, um, if you're not doing a full set of vitals, and in my mind, as a paramedic level provider, Doing a 12 lead is part of that, particularly um, somebody, as you're describing, you know, their their presentation. Yeah. Uh, These are the tools that we have. Mm -hmm. They're diagnostic tools. We should bring them in all the time. You know, I I liken, I I like to use the analogy of the police officer who gets, you know, called to uh, the, the home for a domestic dispute and knocks on the door and a guy like opens the door and goes, yeah, my wife's running around like a crazy woman with scissors. She wants to kill me. 
And so like the officer goes, all right, you know, wait out here. I'm going to go back to my cruiser and get my vest and my taser and my gun yeah. and my handcuffs and all these things that I probably, you know, haven't used yeah. um, in, well, either recently or at all. Uh, these are the tools that we're given. We should be bringing with them, you know, bringing them with us on each of the calls. Yeah, and absolutely. That's good patient care. Yeah, I, I try to live my EMS life around trying to limit the amount of times I get surprised because I think if you have good clinical judgment and you get a good diagnostic picture, for the most part, you know, if someone has difficulty breathing, I should ass- I should assume that there's a potential for me to use CPAP or use, you know, epinephrine or use albuterol. I should think of all of those things, even if I don't, it doesn't mean that I open everything up and get it all ready every single time. But if that patient starts to desat on an on rebreather, I'm going to start to think, okay, what's the next step in the algorithm? What's this thing? You know, maybe that's putting, you know, we had a patient that was in severe respiratory distress, history of CHF, and you take an extra detank and put it on the back of the stretcher yeah. because you know your CPAP has four minutes on a D, like things like that. Just because worst case scenario, we walk in there and it turns out to be a finger laceration from cutting pineapple. Okay, no big deal, mm-hmm. right? And one of the discussions I just had with my um, new lieutenant the other day was this idea that uh, Jocko Willink, the Navy SEAL, has about defaulting aggressive. So default to the to the greatest threat, and then you can always yeah. kind of reel back a little bit. Right. It's hard to um, it's it's hard to uh, ramp up when you don't have those things handy. Yep, exactly. And it it helps control the scene too. I've noticed, especially you know, as a paramedic or all the time I spent as an A when you're a crew captain, if you can limit the amount of time that you're surprised and you can be calm, you know, you walk into a, you know, unresponsive uh, difficulty breathing and they're in arrest. If you're that provider says, we brought the monitor, I've got my intubation role, let's start CPR. This is a cardiac arrest. Like if you're that person that's like, okay, in my head, I already assumed that this was a possibility and I'm prepared for it. That helps the rest of the crew kind of start to integrate really calmly. Whereas if you're the provider that's like, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, like they're in arrest, like somebody run out to the truck, get the AED, we got to come back. Like essentially what you are at that point is a bystander. Exactly. You know, and and we're paid to not be bystanders. Yeah, and that just creates a chaotic scene. Um, And if there are family members there, that doesn't instill a whole lot of confidence. And, um, you know, typically the person we're sending back to get the thing that we didn't bring is probably the, the least experienced person um, to be able to provide assistance on scene. Yeah. Uh, and hopefully they know what it is you're asking them to get and where it is in the truck. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that just um, sets ourselves up for a nasty situation. Yeah, I've, I've said it before. I personally feel like one of the calls that really separates um, the pros from kind of the people that are still developing their skills is how an individual handles an opiate overdose. Something relatively simple, right? You Usually you'll show up. They'll be pretty cyanotic. They'll be pretty desatted. They'll have a you know carotid pulse banging away. They'll be hypoxic, blue, and completely apneic. And the two ways I've typically seen this call run are by people who are a little less prepared, and they walk in and it's like a panic, like they're trying to get an IV, but they're not ventilating, and then they're trying to ventilate, but they can't get a good mass seal. And then I've run this call with a lot of really good providers, both EMTs all the way up through paramedics who... They immediately pull out the bag valve mask. They stabilize the SpO2, and they're like, "Okay, would you like to get an IV, or what would you like to?" And as mm-hmm. soon as we stabilize the oxygen, you can watch your heart rate come down, the color all returns, the blood pressure cycles 130 on 90. Everything's nice and calm. You can even bring the end tidal back down right yeah. into 35 to 45, and 
that was a big deal when I was first starting EMS because I ran a lot of those incidents with people that kind of were like chickens with their head cut off. And it was really stressful as a EMT or an A to be, you know, you're trying to get an IV and the patient's, you know, starting to Brady and all this other stuff. Whereas if you work with a really good heads up provider, they're the type of people that they immediately address that A is an airway, B is in breathing. Right. Check the circulation. Once we have ABCs that are stabilized, we can slow way down and like actually talk about how much Narcan do we want to give? Do we want to give Narcan at, at this all, moment? Yeah. yeah. Like, you know, and uh, that was a huge eye opener to me. Um, and you can apply that same logic to a cardiac arrest. You yeah, know, I think those- a lot of advanced level providers, um, they want to be able to do, they want to do the things that they are, that are within their scope. And in the end, most of this just really requires good BLS skills. Right? Yep. It's BLS before ALS. Exactly. As we always say. Yep. And I actually had a tip from one of my really senior uh, paramedic mentors. And he told me during our airway module of paramedic school, he said, listen, there are going to be times where you're on an intercept and they're just calling you because they're having trouble bagging. And you know, you're, you're going to roll in there and you don't want to roll in there with your scalpel and your, you know, surgical cricothyrotomy. In reality, maybe all you need to do is ramp the patient a little bit, tip their head back and get a good seal because Mm -hmm. maybe this ambulance service or this particular provider, maybe they're, work in a swap or something, and maybe they haven't touched the ambulance in the last five years. You know, maybe they're from a suppression piece and they're just nervous and stressed and they can't get a good seal. And you are the person that has had hours and hours and hours in the OR. It's the same reason why, you know, when you do your OR time before you intubate, they'll make you bag for five, six minutes on a completely paralyzed patient because they want to see your bagging skills. You know, they're not going to just paralyze them and have you innovate right away. They want to give you those opportunities in that high risk scenario in a controlled environment to demonstrate proficiency. That way, when you show up to someone who's on an opiate overdose, you know, you have those solid skills. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, a good um, BVM technique at, at, for any provider is probably the most challenging skill that we have. Yeah. Um, you know, and everybody practices on a mannequin, but we know that uh, on a 10 pound unresponsive head, uh, with no muscle tone, yeah. uh, with possible facial trauma or facial hair or teeth or no teeth, um, getting a seal and being able to ventilate is pretty challenging. Oh, it's it's really, really hard for, absolutely. And we, you know, obviously our business does a lot of CPR recertifications. And I can tell you unequivocally, the number one thing that our healthcare provider classes struggle with the most is BVM ventilations. Yeah. I'll probably, you know, I'll bend the AHA curriculum a little bit and I'll spend a good healthy you know, 30 to 45 minutes on BVM ventilations where we'll go around, you know, and, and we'll help the students, you know, the doctors, the nurses, the EMTs, the firefighters, we'll make sure that everyone in the room is getting good, solid, adequate chest rise every time because you do CPR like every year, every other year, it's easy to just squeeze a bag and be like, okay, 30 and two. But for this, you know, we'll really try to set up our high fidelity mannequins with our electronic feedback and we'll show them how effective it's working. And we'll say, you know, this is your time to practice like this is now is the time to become proficient we have all the time in the world i'm here to help you we're we're all here to help you get better and you know faking it during the training is not going to help you when you're all alone in the middle of route two in south hero with an unresponsive trauma patient like this is for you we're trying to help you um you know because most people are pretty good at compressions they're pretty good at using the aed you know they're pretty good at the bls test they know a lot of those answers but i can tell you right now especially with our healthcare providers BVM ventilations are probably one of the most challenging things for them to maintain proficiency. Yeah. Especially for, you know, a doctor's office that maybe has never BVM'd a patient, yeah. you know, or an ambulance service where 
um, you know, maybe the most advanced provider tries to get on the head every single time, you know, and that's one of the things where when we do have those overdoses, I'll try to, you know, if maybe we have to stabilize immediately, but then I'll try to ask, is anyone in class? Does anyone need bag valve mass ventilations? I'll rotate to a med roll and like mm-hmm. watch the monitor, watch the end title, watch the SBO2. Now's your chance to really have this, you know, ability to practice. Yeah, it's great that you give them that opportunity. We try to. I mean, it's it's hard to to get the reps in sometimes, you know, that even the innovations, I remember in the field, it's it's hard to find that balance where you know, you don't want a situation that's so absolutely critical that now you're putting a student on their third attempt ever in this situation, but you also don't want to never give them a chance to practice. Yeah, they need real life skills. Exactly, exactly. You know, so you have to kind of find this healthy balance of not so high risk, but enough risk that it's real, you know, and that's that's always a challenge, I think. Um, so the last thing I have on our list here is um, I'm personally a really big fan of check sheets in general. Um, I know kind of with your ambulance checks, you have check sheets, but the the ones I'm referring to are kind of algorithms and check sheets related to specific procedures yeah. or um, kind of training call type, things like that. So for example, um, I have a actually a copy of the UVM ED airway checklist. Mm-hmm. Um, and because of our district, I blocked out the RSI parts, but I think the checklist is pretty good in terms of preparatory equipment, you know, decision-making, um, and then post-innovation thoughts. Yeah. Um, have you ever used check sheets? Yeah, check, um, we haven't used checklists on the ambulance so much for, you know, procedurally, obviously we have the checklist for equipment and, um, uh, but have you read the checklist manifesto? Yes, I actually have. Great book. So (laughs) Dr. Atul Gawande, I think is his name. That sounds right. Um, he's a surgeon. Yeah. And he really identified that, uh, this is the way to go that uh, it kind of changed the, um, outcomes for a lot of patients. Uh, people not getting ahead of themselves. I mean, various industries have adopted checklists, uh, certainly the aviation industry. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, It's been proven to be quite a game changer. Yeah, absolutely. I actually, um, have had the ability to talk with the helicopter pilot. We did that crew resource management um, podcast we did where we talked about a lot of the check sheets and how those kind of integrate. One of the things that I'll do as well on the ambulance is um, try to set my ego at the door and I'll give, if there's a free hand, I'll hand them the protocol book or the protocol app and I'll just say, hey, here's what we've done. Can you just go through and make sure we hit the pearls, make sure we hit the right things? Um, You know, and I try my best to know those frontwards and backwards before we go on the call. But when it comes to, you know, patient safety or patient outcome, I am, you know, I'm not above at all looking over the protocol book to make sure I hit everything. And even with, you know, I've heard providers say, well, I don't want the patient to see me doing that because then they think I don't know what I'm doing. What I always say is if the patient asks me that, I say, I'm just making sure we do the best possible care for you. I just want to make sure that we hit every single possible thing we can do for you. You know, and I'll say, you know, I'm very confident in my skills and I'm treating you to the best of my ability. And I believe we're, we're making you better, but the ability for me to check this list, make sure that we're doing everything possible for you before we get to the hospital. And I've never had a poor reaction from a patient when I say yeah, that. Yeah, no, I think that honesty and upfrontness is really important. And, and uh, you know, soliciting feedback from your fellow providers, you know, at whatever level they um, they may, you know, come to the table with. Exactly. Important. Exactly. And, you know, and, and that protocol book can help navigate through the weeds on some of those little tiny things that, you know, maybe we're taught as paramedics or maybe we're from other parts of the country or other districts or other programs, you know, and it might be the difference between one to 1,000 epi versus one to 10,000 or one to 100,000 or, you know, 0.1 mLs versus mm-hmm. 0.1 mGs, you know, so yeah. things like that. And, 
as far as I'm concerned, if it comes down to the safety of a patient, I'm more than happy to check that. I don't, yeah. I don't think it's a knock against my ego or my competency to, to double check the dose. Yeah. So I think checklists are, are, you know, critically important and, um, you know, coming up a plan with, you know, for how you're going to implement those is, is great. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm, I'm just a little plug for airway stuff. I know we're not talking about airway, but I'm a huge fan of the walls emergency airway manual. I don't know uh-huh. if you ever read that. Um, but it's incredible if you are working up through your career, everything through an EMR or an EMT student up through, you know, critical care flight paramedic, I highly, highly recommend the walls emergency airway manual. Most protocols have some sort of nod to that book and pretty much every emergency medical physician I've ever worked with knows that book frontwards and backwards. And it's kind of a core standard of airway practice, both in the OREd trauma, um, all the way across EMS. So I highly, highly recommend it for anyone that's looking for that extra experience. Um, I always give it the plug of, I learned more in that book than I did in six months of airway training, just because it, what it is, is it's, it's evidence-based research data and every chapter has an it has two pages at the end of it that cite each specific scientific study that shows what they're teaching mm-hmm. works which i think is really interesting and i think brains like mine really enjoy that yeah you know drawing that yeah. um, conclusion from effect so really cool yeah good well matt do you have any uh, closing thoughts for complacency at all any advice to some some young bucks coming up through that want to do a great job well i would say um you know hope for the best and prepare for the worst, you yep. know, bring your, bring your tools with you. And, um, you know, just the goal is really to treat our patients as we would, we would want our family treated. Yeah, exactly. And, and what I always tell people too, is, you know, you are, you chose this profession and it, it should be your duty and your job to try to find as many diagnostic findings as you can before you get to the hospital. Yeah. You know, if you're unsure, you know, I always tell the story about the the patient that was told to me by the nursing facility that was not a diabetic and we got about halfway to the hospital and the patient's still unresponsive and we check a blood sugar just for the heck of it. It comes back as low. We give them sugar and then the patient's tell me about his kids, you know, 15 minutes later after his D10, Yeah, you know, yeah. and you are the provider. You are in charge of that patient. And if you have the ability to check it and make a difference, why would you not? Yeah. Why yeah. would you not? Yeah. We get a little tunnel vision sometimes. I know. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yep. So perfect. Well, thanks for joining us, Matt. We really appreciate it. Thanks for being here. You're welcome. Thanks for what you do. Oh, thank you.